0: Welcome to uh, everybody for a packed house. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome you to the James Mead Memorial Lecture. Um, as most of you know, James Meade was a professor of economics at LSE and awarded the Nobel Prize in 1977. Uh, so we're now in the 30th anniversary of the award and the 100th anniversary of his birth. So. Uh, it's a fitting time to celebrate uh, his, his achievements. Um, as you know, James Mead uh, made many fundamental contributions uh, in international trade and international capital movements. So I'm sure if he was here, he'd be delighted to have Paul Krugman, uh, Professor of uh, Economics at Princeton and amongst the world's most famous, perhaps <coughs> if not the most famous, living economist. Um, Paul, as you know, is um, famous for many things. One of, you know, he invented the, the new trade theory, which has had a, a huge impact on, on economics and international trade and very much influenced many of the developments here at, at the LSE and, and the CEP. Um, Paul has uh, you know, won the John Bates Clark Medal for the best economist under 40, which is, a, I'm told uh, by forecasters, a leading predictor of winning the Nobel Prize um, and harder to win, some people would say as well. Um, But not only is Paul a kind of leading global intellectual, he's also deeply engaged in in the political debate. So he's somebody who is uh, extremely influential in terms of thinking about issues issues of our time. He's been described by the Washington Monthly as the most important political um, columnist in America. So we're extremely pleased to have him here. He's also well known as uh, one of the most persistent and effective critics of the Bush administration... Uh, and uh, I'm sure we might be hearing some more about that tonight. His title of his topic is Globalization Welfare, one of the most important issues which confronts us today. So I'll say no more but just to welcome Paul Krugman. Um. Well, thanks. Um, the, I
1: actually took this seriously when I was told it it, would be a Mead Memorial Lecture. And the the title of this talk is actually a play on one of Mead's great books, which was Trade and Welfare. Uh, And uh, it is, in some ways, an attempt to talk about where we are now. I suppose I could have tried to do this as a kind of celebratory, all the things we've learned about trade, but... Maybe because of my other job, I am always now worrying about what are, what are the, the controversial political issues right now. And I, I, as a result, this is really going to be about, about some of the problems and some of the puzzles that we have, and in particular, some of the dilemmas that now face uh, people like myself who are pro-globalization but also have, uh, have other things that we worry about. Um, let me just say a word about Mead, because in, in preparation for this talk, I went back and read quite a lot of James Mead's work. And it's uh, the best I can say about it is that it, it, it reminds me of what I once heard describing as, a, as someone who, who was a composer of, of more of, of uh, what you might call new folk music. and I, It's not worth following that, but it's it, further. But the, um, the description of it was somebody who had the ability to write songs that sounded as if nobody had written them. Uh, things that became so much a part of the fabric of the way you you heard music that they seemed as if they might have been there from time immemorial um, that's actually what the mead meads work is like. You go back and read trade and welfare um, as I did for the first time since graduate school uh, in preparation for this talk um, and it's it's suddenly I, I realized where the, you call it, the the catechism that we do in teaching international trade comes from there's a sequence of things that you go through a whole way of thinking about Uh, about uh, the case for free trade, the criticisms of free trade, the analysis of protection, all of the ways that one might go through it, that it's just there. You don't think of it as being somebody's. And, of course, the point is it's actually mead. It's actually something that that mead created out of a very confused field in the 1950s, created this synthesis of how we think about trade and welfare. Um, And... uh, I'm actually going to start with a little bit of, of where that comes from and then talk about how that relates, not as well as we might hope, to some of the things that advocates of, of free trade tend to say. So uh, let me begin and be sure that we actually have this. Um, let me tell you, the, the, the th- this talk is really going to be about being chastened that uh, not uh, I'm not about to say oh I was wrong all my life and free trade is a mistake and uh, and uh, not not at all uh but as someone who was very much uh a promoter a defender of increased globalization uh and if I go back 15 years ago I was quite unalloyed in my enthusiasm uh I've had along with I think I hope everyone who's paying attention, some, some chastenings. Uh, the first is that um, the extremely optimistic view that we, we, many of us had about what uh, uh, globalization would do for growth, particularly in developing countries, uh, is not looking as defensible. It's not to say that, it's, it's, uh, it, that we've suddenly changed and decided that, that the bad policies that were, uh, uh, we got rid of were the right thing to do, but that it doesn't look as good as, as for a while we believed. Um, the second chastening is the whole issue of trade and distribution. Now, some of you may have seen I passed through and gave a, a, a talk about that here uh, not too long ago. And uh, some of that is going to be here again, but there's only a piece of this. Um, the relative calmness that I and others had uh, a dozen years ago about the impact of international trade on income distribution in advanced countries Uh, is looking – it was right given the numbers then, Uh, but um, things have changed, and the the numbers are are now in a range where – it's no longer appropriate to be calm, and it might be right to be getting a little slightly hysterical—not uh, not, not, not fully, but a little bit. And I'll, I'll explain that in a bit. Uh, and the third is a genuine puzzle, uh, which is uh, well—you can see—liberalizing appears to be at least associated, in some cases, ambiguously with uh, with things going the wrong way uh, on the other side of the transaction as well. But I'll come back come back to that. Um, so what did, uh, what did Meade say about trade? Uh, what he said is that he uh, made the case for free trade, and it's a very buttoned-down, very, uh, you know, not, nothing, uh, nothing extravagant, nothing, uh, no, no, no hand-waving, extremely buttoned-down case. It's saying that free trade does, is the right thing because it gets the marginal conditions right. Uh, because in a world of free trade, the cost of producing one more unit of a good uh, is the same as the cost of importing that good. So you don't produce something when you ought to be importing it. You don't import it when you should be producing it. At the margin, you set it so the the cost is exactly equal. Uh, In free trade, the cost of consuming a good Uh, is the price, which is equal to the cost of importing it, which is also equal to the cost of producing a unit. So all the marginals uh, are are put equal to each other, and so we have free trade in a, uh, he actually uses the word utopian, in a utopian world, uh, free trade is getting you to a a position of efficiency. It's a good thing. Uh, Protectionism is a bad thing because it breaks that equality of marginal conditions. If you protect, you're going to be producing a good, uh, at a cost at the margin, which is higher than the cost of importing it, and so that's um, that that's inefficient. If you you're also going to have consumers paying a higher a higher price than the cost of importing the good, so again they they're they're not facing the right marginal condition. So free trade is is good. Protectionism is bad, and that gives you a way to assess the the costs of protectionism. The question that we need to ask uh, is. How important they are, and the reason we need to ask that. There's not a lot in in, in Mead about the political economy of trade. It, it really is the position of imagine yourself as a um, uh, uh, as, as a dis, dis uh, disinterested um, manager. Saying setting out to do the best with an economy, and your your charge from an unusually enlightened uh, president or prime minister is to figure out the best thing and don't don't worry about about where we can get the votes for it. That's in effect the stance of the the position, which is a good thing to do. Uh, but in the real world, when we have uh, a lot of Cross-cutting demands and and concerns, uh, and in which also people are looking. There are people out there with with other recipes, other proposals. Uh, we want to know what the what the theory says. And as I'll explain in in a, in a minute or two, um, one of the things that unfortunately happens, I think it's a kind of a sin that that into which uh, economists tend to fall, is that we we have a theory that says free trade is good. Actually, very often we have a theory that says that free markets are good. Um, And then we treat that as a kind of a license to claim wondrous results from these free market principles that are not justified by the actual model. Uh, And we end up invoking all sorts of things that are not in that model. And if, while they could be right, are no more Plausible, no more justified by the evidence than claims that run in the opposite direction. That would make us be uh, uh, want to have less free trade, want to have less free markets. Uh, so let me let me give you a uh, uh, a kind of illustration of, of what it might look like. Uh, this is okay. I wanted to get some numbers that were more or less that that were not too complicated, and of course, in reality, is always. Uh, there's always an enormous amount of annoyance. Try and, and look at any actual protectionist regime uh, and it's never, there's always, every time you, if you actually talk to the lawyers in particular and you say, no, so I understand this is what they, they always say, no, no, that's not right. There's, there's always something else. Uh, but I think I can produce what's kind of a stylized case and it's, it, what I wanted was a case of a country that really has changed trade policy a lot and there have been quite a few of those. We've had a, a remarkable change in the, in the third world in trade policy. Uh, so look at the case of India. Now, those of you who are the actual uh, trade people in this room know that what I'm doing here is, you know, just as the lawyers would say, well, that's not quite right, uh, and economists would say that's not quite right either. This is partial equilibrium, it should be general, but it actually doesn't make a whole lot of difference to the point. So um, here we think of sliding down the demand for imports. And this is a, as I say, it's stylized India. If you look in India, the nominal rate of protection on manufactured goods uh, in the late 1970s was about 120%. So this is, you know, we're not talking about the, the small protectionist things that, that the UK or or the United States or the European Union or the United States do. We're talking about, you know, really major, majorly uh, protective policies. Um, that has now been liberalized, and, of course, liberalized India is still a far more protectionist country than the United States has been since uh, since the Smooth Holy tariff, I mean, it's it's a uh, but it's 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 much liberalized. Uh, and it's also a country that's been opened to trade quite a lot, and so the share of imports has risen from around six to around twelve percent of GDP, uh, which is still Rather low in today's world, although given the the size of the of the country, it's it's uh, unless it, unless it starts to become a Chinese style sort of a assembly platform for the world, you wouldn't expect it to be an enormous share of imports and GDP. Um, how do we assess the costs? Well, uh, it's the marginal stuff. Uh, the cost of importing a good is the world price. Uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, Value of that good to the Indian economy, the value of the import, either in freeing up resources from domestic production or in consumption, is the domestic price. So if you import just a little bit of imports beyond where they started, it actually would have been worth domestically uh, 2.2 times the world price. Uh, if you ask take a little bit more, it's, uh, it drops and at the end. Uh, as you're getting up to the current situation, $1 worth of imports is worth only about $1.30 in the Indian economy, although it's still worth more than it actually costs India to get it. So your average would be, well, it turns out that's 175, so the, uh, the average of, of those additional imports that have taken place, and this is attributing all of the growth in imports to the change in trade policy, which might itself be an exaggeration, uh, would be about 75% of the world price, so if we've got imports that are now around twelve percent of GDP uh, that's telling us that the extra imports were adding to the Indian economy around four and a half percent of GDP that's you know that's not small stuff uh, for what it's worth um, the uh, uh, the latest estimate uh, for the United States, uh, the the International Trade Commission does a, an estimate of the uh, co- costs of measurable trade restrictions uh, to, for the United States, and the most recent is now down to I think about four billion dollars. Uh, that's in a in a uh, um, in a twelve trillion dollar economy, thirteen trillion, whatever we are now. Uh, the, so the you know, this is it, it's it's. Uh, it's risible in the United States now, but it's uh, in, in the case of India, the, the effects of the liberalization are a pretty hefty chunk. 4.5% of GDP is, is nobody's idea of, of something that doesn't matter. Um, but it's not the kind of thing people have in mind when they really talk about the gains from liberalization. So if we look at uh, the, the uh, India story, uh, now India, this is one of those really happy stories in the world. It's something where after, uh, after a very long period of extreme disappointment, something started to go right. And now it actually, as uh, Danny Roderick at Harvard has pointed out, it actually started to go right uh, uh, about 10 years before the big reduction in tariff rates. But all right, we can play games with that one way or another. Uh, so we see India going from the infamous Hindu rate of growth, just a little bit ahead of population growth, to, uh, to something about two percentage points higher. Uh, for really now 25 years, um, that's you know 50 percent uh, bigger and still continuing, um, and a lot of people say, well that shows you what free trade does. Um, but problem is that's you know and that's the, the Poor John Williamson, who actually coined the phrase Washington Consensus. and It was really a very modest set of, of reasonable propositions, but, but, uh, but he doesn't control it, and it becomes this view that free markets do wondrous things. Um, so the Washington Consensus said free trade does fabulous things for you. As it happens, the acceleration in Indian growth is just about as big as the acceleration in growth that in, a, in, in the 1980s the World Bank said came from having outward-oriented policies. And That report has been uh, savaged by you know, wave after wave of subsequent research, uh, but that's the kind of thing that, for a while, people believed you could get two percent, two percentage point faster growth for an extended period of time from outward-looking policies. Um, but that, if that that could be true, could be true. But if so, it's for reasons that have nothing to do with the textbook case for free trade. And that's my point, that we we say that there are these wonderful things that will happen as a result of free trade, and those seem to be grounded in textbook international economics because textbook international economics says that free trade is a wonderful thing. But in fact, to make sense of those, you have to invoke something that's very, very different from the textbook stuff. You have to be talking about some kind of external economies or spillovers or um, international transmission of information or increase in, well, something, something that, that is ill-specified, can create models. You can create a model under which free trade will do wondrous things to economic growth. Uh, but I think one of the things we've learned uh, in since we started doing imperfect competition and uh, endogenous technology is that a smart graduate student can produce a model that will justify any proposition. So it's really a... Um, <coughs> what we thought... Basically, it came down to this. People's read of history was that there was this... You know, look, Latin America was very protectionist. East Asia... Well, actually, if you looked at tariff rates, it wasn't that clear a difference, but they were certainly much more open economies, much more trade. And those newly industrializing economies in particular really took off. And you looked at the uh, this expansion, this is East Asia minus China. Already, you really did much, much better in Asia, and that in people 's minds seem to be the justification for the belief that uh, that free trade or freer trade trade liberalization outward orientation did wonderful things for growth and it was a kind of a um, a read based on people 's perception of historical experience now there 's actually uh, there 's a huge uh, economic literature trying to which basically is trying to test whether that perception is really right if you actually try to uh, do a regression where you have a bunch of stuff and you include some measure of trade policy? Does Is there actually a, a, uh, a, a clear uh, proposition that, that says that, that open trade it leads to much faster growth? Um, I would describe the history of that literature as being uh, back and forth. People keep on finding results that do say that outward orientation does great things for growth. And then careful looking at it shows that that was actually very sensitive to specifically how you, you formulated it. Uh, so that, for example, that infamous World Bank study classified countries as outward or inward oriented without quite explaining how they did it. And if you started to use objective measures, the whole thing went away. Uh, but back and forth, and you know, some of it really hard work, and, and, uh, but it's as if people know what the answer is there. They, they, mu- they know that it must be, you know, the old joke, there must be a pony in there. They, they keep on digging through the, uh, um, uh, through the horse manure, trying to find the, uh, the pony and claim they found it and it won't take no for an answer. And the, the truth is that in the end, uh, the stuff isn't really, you know, might be there, but it's not really clear. And what's interesting is that's really no different from the way people used to justify the import substituting industrialization policies. Um, after World War II, it was for a period of about 20 years. Uh, everybody just knew that developing countries, by protecting their manufacturing from competition, uh, were going to—that that was the route to development. And what they said, you ask, well, how do you know that? And they, they have, there were various models out there that were not terribly persuasive, taken on you know from on their logic. Uh, but they said well, that's what the lesson of history uh, is. And actually, it turns out uh, that the uh, the history. Lesson of history might well have been taken to be that. This is uh, borrowed this from Jeff Williamson at Harvard, who's done a lot of interesting work on on, uh, on, on the history of trade policy and growth. Uh, and uh, if you took a bunch of countries, you can see them if you've got uh, good eyesight. Uh, they, if you looked at the countries that were uh, had very high tariff rates, which would at that point have been Argentina and the U.S they were actually also the fastest growing countries in, in per capita GDP. So it really was true that there was, a, and you can't actually, by the way, do get an equally clear picture post-war. Uh, it is true that, after, that there is a slight negative correlation between tariff rates and growth um, in the period since World War II, but it's much less striking, actually, than the clear positive correlation that was there before World War I. Uh, now we can think of lots of reasons. Probably mostly the causation ran the other way. I mean, it, the truth is that those high-growth, high high-protection high countries were, um, uh, you know, Canada, Argentina, U.S., it basically uh, those are what at the time they called the, uh, uh, the zones of uh, zones of recent settlement, uh, uh, which were also the places that received lots of capital inflows. That That's, I guess, an, a more modern, more honest description is those were the places where white people were moving in and slaughtering the natives. Um, and those were the places that grew fast. Um, but, you know, there's a kind of association. Now, there was some other stuff. Uh, amazing how many times you uh, will find people, uh, uh, older literature, saying, and Germany had lots of protection and grew behind protectionist barriers. Uh, and it actually turns out not to be true. Germany was not highly protective. Uh, Bismarck talked about it, and he had a few highly conspicuous uh, uh, laws, but the actual reality was it wasn't very protectionist, but people lumped that in just as. In the uh, high tide of the Washington Consensus, any country that was doing well uh, was, ended up being classified as outward-oriented, even if it really wasn't, as far as you could tell by any uh, clear measure. Um, and the fact of the matter is that uh, you know, we, we made a – well, we made, we, we, there was some reason to believe. I, I, you know, I believed it, too, uh, that it, it, it looked as if outward orientation was really certainly associated with growth. Um, and I would say there's a little residual bit of that even in me now which is to say that all of the success stories all of the really amazing success stories have involved outward orientation uh, but what we've learned no, South Korea it, it ultimately South Korea and China now are the stories that, that justify your faith that good things can happen from globalization um, but uh if you asked me or lots of people in the early 90s, we would have said that if, if other countries that are currently very closed will do the same thing, uh, they can experience maybe not quite South Korea type reforms. they can experience wonderful results. Well, uh, that has turned out not to be, certainly not to be reliably true and i 'm sorry i 'm here, but my view of these things tends to be somewhat u s centric so I tend to be focused on the countries that that play a big role in in our political debate and uh, here 's the um, the one that that pops up immediately uh, mexico uh, mexico had a truly dramatic uh, truly dramatic uh, change in policy it was very inward oriented very protectionist uh, was a country that pretty much exported oil and uh, and beaches uh, in 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 the uh, in 1980, uh, and became a country that is primarily a manufacturing exporter now. Um, interestingly, by the way, most of the most of the liberalization took place before NAFTA It was really the, something that took place in the mid 80s, uh, and uh, the uh, and particularly since we standard trade theory says that that cutting a tariff rate from um, from 25 to 10 uh, is a lot more important than cutting it from 10 to zero. Roughly speaking, the, the standard costs tend to be the square of the tariff rate. Uh, then, that the big stuff already happened before. Um, and um, if you had, if we believed that that openness was really the key to growth, we would have expected very good things to happen in Mexico. Uh, what actually happened was this. Um, you know, you can tell stories. Um, there have been after uh, after 1995. There have been no more crises. Uh, some things in Mexico have gotten much better. Uh, the phones work. Uh, it's it's become a lot easier for a high income. Uh, uh, high income gringo to, to visit life, is, life has gotten very much easier if you 're up at the upper end but but per capita GDP has actually uh, fallen a bit relative to the u s and although the data are lousy, real wages appear to have not done very well appear to have fallen um, it's just not it, it certainly hasn 't been anything like an east asian style tra- takeoff and that despite enormous success actually in, in trade growth i mean the, the Mexican success at becoming a manufacturing exporter has actually surpassed expectations. The Mexican economic payoff has fallen very short. It's not catastrophic, it's, uh, it's, but it's just kind of a little bit sad. And that's a, a big disillusioning factor. Um, lesson I take from this, I think, is that we oversold. And oversold to ourselves. I don't think it was dishonest. I think it was that we we wanted to believe that there were good things from free trade. We wanted to believe that the East Asian successes were replicable everywhere, and we fell into what was almost a a pun or a kind of a uh, whatever a positive version of guilt by association. Uh, trade theory says free trade is good, uh, therefore what we think we see in the experience which says that free trade yields wonderful results is more respectable than the old view that said that protectionism yields wonderful results because it accords with trade theory, but it actually didn't, it had nothing to do with the real trade theory argument, with the, with the one that was that comes from Mead. And so uh, uh, you have gotta be chastened now. Now again, I should say, this is, this is not to say that there are no gains from trade, and it's certainly not to say that, that there are not some countries that depend desperately on relatively open world markets. Uh, And in fact, these days, my case for relatively free trade rests less on the hope for more South Koreas uh, than it does on the how do we keep Bangladesh's head above water argument. Uh, But in any case, the point is that we we got ourselves a little bit uh, trapped. Let me turn to my second theme. Um, One of the... One of the, th- the things that Meade was quite frank about um, is the, uh, the role of, of trade in affecting the distribution of income, uh, and there's a clear, very clear discussion uh, of, of this. It's really it's Stolper-Samuelson, but it's it's done uh, in Meade's own way, instead of being done in terms of uh, uh, of, of ingenious diagrams that. That make uh, that most human beings can't i mean they 're actually wonderful if you get into it, but they're the, they 're not the way that most people can get close to thinking uh, so he he did it in terms of numerical examples tables um, and uh, uh, here's the uh, uh, the the little table that's actually on mead page three hundred three uh, so he envisages one thing that is actually kind of almost uh refreshing from a modern point of view is that there's no no hint of an attempt to uh uh to sex up the documents uh, the, uh, to uh to to make it uh seem contemporary by by throwing in things that sound like the events that are actually happening you know i you take a look at, a look at what the world was like in 1955 it was uh you know there was wild stuff there was um um dollar shortage and and all of these things that had been taking place during the period that the, the, the book would have been written. Um, but it's, his is, it's a book for the ages and it's sort of uh, nice and, and abstract. So, so he envisages an economy that produces apples, which are land intensive, and blankets, which are labor intensive. Uh, and, uh, and says, what happens if there's a rise in the relative price of blankets? And points out, this is very standard in the textbooks, that what has to happen actually is this kind of dance uh, of the factors of production? Ooh, what a horrible image! Anyway, uh, in which the uh, in which uh, obviously land and labor have to flow into the blanket industry. But since blankets are more labor-intensive, the only way you can release those resources is if both industries shift towards using uh, um, less labor and more land per unit of output. So you have to have this kind of simultaneous movement of factors and change in the factor proportions, um, and as a result. Uh, because in both industries, labor is working with more land per per laborer, uh, the marginal product of land uh, of labor goes up, and so the real wage of labor is going to rise in terms of both goods, more in terms of apples, which have gotten relatively cheaper, less in terms of blankets. Um, and conversely, land is going to you know have a lower marginal product in terms of both goods, and so the real rental rate on land is going to fall by. Uh, in terms of both goods, although much more so in terms of blankets, because that the price has risen um, okay that 's clear cut, but of course, call those um, labor and capital uh, and rather than labor and land, make it be or better still labor and uh, and highly skilled labor uh, and make it be not a uh, A rise in the price of blankets, but a fall in the price of labor-intensive manufactured goods due to uh, the emergence of of, uh, industrializing Asia. Um, And you're starting to talk about something which is actually fairly explosive, namely that some broadly defined group, some broadly defined factor of production, uh, like not especially highly skilled labor, um, is not just losing in relative terms, but losing in absolute terms. And that's uh, that's actually a standard. It's one of those odd things. It, it's some of the discussions we have on trade now. People who are economists who are not particularly imbued in the trade field are are coming back and making the arguments that uh, that Stolper and Samuelson basically demolished uh, 65 years ago. They're saying, well, you know, sure, there's going to be some relative loss, but this increased trade, you know, because it lowers prices has got to be good for people. If you're going to have, uh, sure, rel- you know, unskilled workers may be hurt a bit and relatively, but the lower prices at Walmart are going to more than make up for that. And what this is saying is, no, actually, it doesn't. It actually makes people, uh, p- makes people worse off. Um, now, if we were, if things looked okay on the distributional front, uh, then we wouldn't make such a big deal out of this uh all through the period from uh, from World War two up until the uh, uh up until the circa nineteen eighty uh distribution of income by most measures was highly stable in the us and and to the extent we have the data everywhere else so there was no the uh, the idea that trade could in principle have effects on income distribution was was not something you worried about a whole lot in practice um since then I guess as everybody knows the uh the Uh, The United States to a very large extent, the U.K. to a somewhat lesser, considerably lesser extent, but still there, and uh, uh, faint echoes in other English-speaking countries uh, uh, have seen a a really noticeable increase in inequality. Um, Actually, it turns out I've been learning more. I thought I knew everything about this, but I'm learning more than than before. um, It's actually worse even than the standard numbers suggest because many of the numbers we look at uh, uh, don't, look at at uh, uh, at workers by age. Uh, and because the workforce has been getting older uh, and moving towards higher earning years, the aggregate numbers tend to look better for the typical worker than the reality. So uh, so here's here's uh, what the numbers look like for the u s for the earnings of of, standardized. We're looking at that sort of prime working age, uh, the the age when when, when people in general are trying to raise a family. Um, And we're looking at men because there's a women, discrimination against women has diminished some, uh, so they've done better uh, relatively, although absolutely they're still much worse. Um, And um, here's what you see. it's actually one of those classic things, right? The, uh, the, the median is up. Sorry, the mean is up. Average wages are up, though not all that much over that period. Um, but they're up around 10%. Uh, but the median earnings of uh, prime age American men are down significantly. Uh, despite the fact that it's a more productive, richer economy, it's, it's everything is you know the uh, so the, the, and this is of course typical when inequality rises, right? If you uh, um, if, if Bill Gates walks into a bar, the the uh, the mean wealth rises, but the median doesn't. And so what you're seeing is this situation where the uh, the the large income gains at the top uh, are are not being reflected in the median, and in fact the distribution is worsening so much. I guess that's a value judgment. Anyway, it's worsening so much that the uh, that the typical worker is actually worse off. Um, yeah, just side note for the U.S. The, these uh, uh, these data don't really show you how much the, the mean is really going up because U.S. Uh, U.S. The, the data on which this is based are top coded so that uh, that uh, incomes above 999,000 a year are truncated. Um, and believe it or not, uh, that actually makes a significant difference to the u s data because uh, well it, you, you know uh, um, George Soros, who I see uh, has guns uh, on some he 's about to do another one here but George Soros is uh, is a poor guy because uh, uh, i think he's he 's well down in the ranking of the hedge fund managers because he made a little bit under a billion last year, so anyway um, okay um just to give you a sort of related this is not just about education, but this is the, where the the trade issue tends to be we think a lot about education. Uh, this is just the U.S., the uh, college-high school wage ratio. Um, pretty much inexorable upward march since the uh, since the late 1970s. Um, okay, this is pretty serious stuff. Now, the thing is that upward march does correspond roughly to the period when, for the first time, we started to get large-scale exports of manufactured goods from developing countries, uh, and ever since the late 80s, there's been a lot of discussion about what, how big a role is that? Uh, how how big is the effect of, of those imports? Um, and again, it, there were a lot of people who just did not want to believe that there could be any. Uh, that's a position that some people still hold, but uh, you know, James Mead would have told us different. They, it certainly could be. In principle, there could be an increase in uh, um, in in income inequality are arising from trade. Now, I said there's going to be some chastening here, so let me tell you about uh, my own chastening. Um, I was, I did not not the most detailed studies, but I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, and was a heavy consumer of studies that that uh, tried to assess the impacts of of trade on distribution uh, during the the uh, 1990s. And at that time. Uh, what I thought was the right position was not to say nothing, can't be, uh, not to say trade must be good for everybody because that's actually not what the what the theory says, uh, but rather to sort of crunch the numbers and come up with the conclusion that it had to be fairly modest. Uh, and so we got numbers. I, I came up with 3%. Some other people, uh, Bill Klein, with the sort of last of that sequence, came up with 6% on the, the wage differential. Uh, the... Um, Uh, they were fairly modest numbers. The reason they were modest was that although there had been this explosion uh, of exports of manufactured goods from third world countries, it was still quite small compared with the first world economies. So this is the U.S. imports of manufactured goods from from developing countries. They were still under 2% of GDP in 1990. And so working with data around in the early 90s, uh, you put that through, and it did not seem to be a really uh, huge effect. Um, the, uh, these are what the estimates actually looked like. Uh, so, uh, Hatz and Friedman came up with quite small numbers, although their derif- numbers were affected. A lot of technical stuff about the trade deficit. Um, I said three percent. Bill Klein. The dates on here are not the dates of the papers, but the dates of the data. So, uh, so the the, uh, the The Bill Klein, although it was actually published in '97, had trade data through '93, and it looked, you know, that's significant. That's not, that's certainly not something you would just wave away as being nothing. But it's not at the core. Not something you could say that's 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 a secondary issue in the story of trade and distribution. Um, And again, just go back here for a second. This is because this is what the uh, the the trade numbers looked like. Uh, Time has marched on uh these are i i've been trying it's pretty it it i don't quite haven't quite managed to put it together but it, this number would be above five now um the uh the imports well this is mainly china uh driving this it's uh, some other countries as well, even india by the way although the the cutting edge the thing that caught everybody's attention was the service exports uh the uh, manufactured exports are coming along uh, so and of course we're, we're missing the new outsourced service issues uh so it it's um it's starting to look uh, uh well it's it's much bigger uh than than it was um if you just did this in the most straightforward way. Uh, you would have to be saying that the impact on distribution is two-plus times bigger uh, than, than the estimates that people had in, in, in the 90s. Uh, so if we took the Klein estimate, we'd be saying 12 15%. Uh, it might be worse than that. Uh, and the reason is that the, uh, the, new, the new kid on the block, the new player, China, uh, is not just huge, but also much um, further down in terms of wages, much more labor-abundant than the, the previous players. So in 1990, the uh, newly industrializing Asian economies, which were what everybody thought of as the, as the trade, um, uh, as the source of, of increased inequality, had wages that were uh, about 25% of the U.S. level. Um, uh, at this point, the, uh, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has now started to try to put together China estimates, which they never did before. Uh, and they are estimating China at about 3% of U.S. level in terms of wages. Uh, now, by the way, that does not mean that China you know, is super competitive, that it's not true that the Chinese are as productive as we are and they pay 3% the wages. They're, for the most part, that is uh, offset by low productivity. Uh, the, uh, but, but the point is that, that the kinds of goods, the, the low wage is a sign of a very labor-abundant, still quite skill-scarce economy, Uh, that is going to be exporting goods that very much compete at the low end, uh, do in effect displace uh, low-wage labor in the U.S. and in the E.U., and therefore do uh, tend to exacerbate the um, income inequality. And you can no longer say uh, in in a, uh, you know, you can no longer credibly say, look, uh, yes, I agree in principle, but quantitatively it's not a big deal. That's just not a – I don't think that's now a tolerable argument. Um, I'll come back in a little bit to what, what do you do about that, given, given that we now got a problem. But I think that's, uh, um, that's pretty clear. I, I should say also – I'm not trying to try and give you a, a chart for it – but that uh, I had two tricks, two, two more lines of defense back in the mid-'90s about worry, against worries about the impact of trade on inequality. Uh, the first was to say, well, look, these countries that are exporting may grow, and they may export more, but they'll also be moving up the skill ladder themselves. That as, uh, as uh, South Korea becomes a, uh, an even bigger economy, will also become a richer, more skilled economy, and therefore its, its exports will place, although they may be larger in quantitative terms, will actually place less, less downward pressure on unskilled wages in the U.S., will And and that's true. uh, There's actually been a dramatic upskilling of the exports of the original uh, Asian tigers. Uh, The trouble is, along comes China. And that's where you come back. Instead of getting these exports from upskilling uh, South Korea, now we get huge imports from China, which is uh, far lower wage relative to the advanced countries now than South Korea has been since the early 1970s. So the, uh, the, the China emergence uh, undermines that argument. Um, the other argument that I had was, and this is very straight median trade theory, was, well, this can all, median in, with, with, with an A in it, uh, not, not, uh, not middle of the distribution. Um, the, um, it, it was that the, there's uh, eventually run out of labor-intensive industries to lose, that you, uh, you know, in terms of the trade theory, that you get full specialization at that point, no further effects on income distribution. Uh, well, what w- what's turned out is that the range of labor-intensive industries keeps on expanding because we can break up the production process, because we can fragment uh, the the uh, the industries, uh, so that. Uh, to take a, uh, a example I was just looking at a, a bit to try and, and just get some real-world anecdotes. Um, the, um, the semiconductor, the microprocessors are undoubtedly a uh, skill-intensive, high-tech thing. Um, but at this point, Intel has broken up the production process. Uh, the fabs, which produce the, uh, actually get the circuits, onto the, onto the disks of silicon are all in high-wage advanced countries, mostly in the U.S., Ireland, and Israel. Uh, but the actual cutting of those disks into individual chips and the testing is all done in China, the Malaysia, and the Philippines. Uh, so it's, uh, that's, in effect, created a new labor-intensive industry that can be moved abroad. Um, the whole business about outsourcing of services is really just best, I think, seen as, as part of the same phenomenon you now take the non-physical parts of production and get to shift them back and forth internationally. Uh, And that means both taking labor-intensive stuff uh, and moving it to the third world, and in some cases taking skill-intensive stuff and moving it to the first world, which also has the effect of of enlarging the range of possible uh, income distribution effects. So that Lenovo, the Chinese computer manufacturer, actually has its executive headquarters in North Carolina. But again, it's it's uh, that's a, a process of of, um, of of further expanding the range of trade. Uh, so uh, you know it, it's we're now at a, we're now in a position where textbook trade theory uh, applied to the real world data can easily justify a belief that international trade has widened the skill differential in the United States by. Uh, Fifteen percent, maybe uh, higher than that, and still rising, with no obvious end in sight. Uh, again, if we were some of us, I think I was a little bit less sinning than others, but but we 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 fell into the trap of thinking that trade must always be good for everybody because that's kind of what Chapter Two of the book says. And uh, but it's, it's not true once you go beyond that. Let me turn just briefly to my third. Uh, chastening, um, which is a question about trade and the third world, and it's interesting because the uh, the passions of uh, on trade. Um, I would I would say that the, the political debate on trade is really two pieces. There's one which is actually fairly pragmatic, and probably is the one that matters most for electoral politics. Uh, which is what does it do to workers in first world countries? Uh, what does it do to workers who by a global standard are actually doing quite well uh, the uh, uh, but that's not you know easy enough for for uh, fairly well paid academics to say uh, but but the uh, what the if, if you like if I want to be uh, concrete. Uh, From my point of view, the the political problem is what do I say to to the workers of Ohio? Uh, Or more directly, what do I say to Senator Sherrod Brown, who's a good guy and I share a lot of values with. But how do I I answer his concern that trade is hurting his constituents when the reality probably is that that it is? Um, But the passions, the real passions of, of trade are about what happens to uh, to third world countries? What happens to the poor? Um, and that's where actually my passionate and only slightly chastened advocacy of globalization is not about believing that it does wonderful things for the U.S. or the European economy, but about believing there's the only hope for Bangladesh. Uh, there's the only hope for, for the really poor nations of the world. Uh, and that hope is a bit diminished, but it's still... The, the reason I believe so much. On the other hand, the anti-globalization advocates are, again, they're not, they may have some concern about the wages of blue-collar workers in Ohio, uh, but mostly they're concerned about the belief that globalization is doing terrible things to the poorest of the earth. Um, now, there's no hint that uh, in anything I've seen that, that globalization is a bad thing for growth in the third world. Uh, there, there is. Uh, we may may not be as good a thing as as some of us were temporarily uh, able to believe. But uh, but there's no sign that's negative for growth. There is some evidence that there are there are problems of distribution. Uh, and uh, so, for example, this is not the. Uh, this this is uh, well. Even the Wall Street Journal uh, noticed this. Okay. Um, Actually, the Wall Street Journal has two papers, of course, uh, uh, one, one, one quite good and one uh, bat crazy. Um, but anyway, <laughs> un- unless Rupert Murdoch buys it, in which case it becomes one paper again. Um, the, um, uh, so what they noticed is that uh, in Mexico, the Gini coefficient has gone up since liberalization, uh, although not since NAFTA. It's really that early phase of liberalization that's really associated with increased inequality, Uh, and of course, China has become a uh, gone from being a uh, quite egalitarian, if uh, if highly repressive society, to one that is uh, uh, is now um, uh, reaching or surpassing Latin American levels of inequality. now, in the case of China, of course, there's lots of things going on, so it's not just trade. Uh, in the case of Mexico, it mostly is trade. Um, what about uh, that? And the evidence is, I'm not sure this is, uh, th- this is a, a picture of skill premiums. It's sort of corresponding to the American one, but it's actually done by, the, this is the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, they've just taken points of liberalization, they've chosen a year which they believe is the sort of center of gravity of the liberalization. And by and large, though not everywhere, uh, there have been increases in, uh, in inequality. Uh, Mexico tends to, that Mexican experience in the 80s is the clearest cut case. Um, there's a substantial increase in, in, uh, um, in Chile and Colombia as well. Um, not uh, enough to, to say that the, it, it looks on average though not everywhere as if inequality is actually rising in third world countries now there's a temptation to say that that's contrary to economic theory the same theory that says that liberalization ought to be raising wages in the first world countries um, uh, raising inequality and ought to be diminishing it in the third world there are actually ways around that comes back to the any smart Actually, this was beyond I think smart graduate students. It took some some smart associate professors to come up with the uh, uh, to this one but, but you can come up with stories, particularly this fragmentation of production offers some opportunities because it's not just like a reduction in tariff. If you make something that wasn't tradable tradable, uh, you can get some interesting effects. Uh, in particular, the story with Mexico there's a fair bit of evidence that what's actually happened is sort of intermediate. Uh, range goods, goods that are uh, moderately labor intensive, uh, have shifted production from the United States to Mexico. And those are goods that are more labor intensive than most of what the U.S. is producing. So they're actually making the U.S. more unequal. But they're actually somewhat less labor intensive and more capital and skill intensive than what Mexico is producing. So they're actually also raising the U.S., it's a little bit like the, you know, the. Uh, I'm trying to think of a department I hate. The, the guy who moves from Princeton to, uh, to Chicago and, and, and raises the average in both places. Um, the, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I don't actually have anything against Chicago. Not, not as it is now, as, a, as it was once. Um, the evidence on, on trade and, and poverty is, uh, is mixed also, but certainly um, not, uh, not uniformly encouraging. Uh, we certainly have, in Mexico, again, especially, and to some extent, Colombia, uh, evidence that trade has actually, uh, that globalization, trade liberalization, has actually uh, uh, worsened poverty. Um, I'm not sure I regard it as an intellectual puzzle. I did for a while, but the more I look at it, I think we can, we can more or less make sense of it, partly because the, the picture is sufficiently mixed. Uh, but it's another reason. Now, if you had asked me... Uh, I think I'm actually on paper saying this. In in 1990, I was quite sure that trade liberalization would equalize income in developing countries, that it would actually be good on all accounts. It would not only promote growth, and I thought it would do these wonderful things for growth that we all believed at the time trade liberalization did, uh, but it would also be equalizing because I thought uh, it would increase the demand for labor relative to capital, and it would have all these favorable distributional effects. Uh, And the picture is, in fact, at at best, uh, mixed. Uh, It has not uniformly had favorable effects. Uh, The original Asian economies, again, uh, excessive faith in the power of historical experience is a big part of the story. Uh, The original Asian industrializing economies did have a remarkable combination of growth with equity. Uh, in the early phases things went very well both in terms of income distribution and of course in terms of growth uh, that experience has not been replicated any place else and uh, and in some cases as you can see it appears to have gone wrong so again my third chastening so in this kind of uh, apologetic mood uh, what what do we do now um, and let me let me say again uh, the the um, a whole, I, I don't actually think we're on the verge of, of a wholesale return to protectionism. Very hard for me to see a uh, another smooth holly. Uh, it's uh, it's been interesting that even in countries that have uh, uh, very vocally uh, rejected the the Washington consensus, uh, and that there has not been anything like a return to import substituting uh, to, to the bad old policies of the 70s. Argentina. I uh, certainly uh, had some, some pretty stiff rhetoric, but not, you know, not the whole, uh, the, not, not back to Peronism. Um So I, I, I don't think that's a, a likely prospect. But in any case, I should it, let me just say that I think a, a, a pretty open global trading system is a very important thing to maintain, not because it's terribly important to the economy of the United States or, or Western Europe, The fact of the matter is that that even a full-out trade war uh, would make the United States or the European Union a few percent at most poorer. It's just not not that big a deal. But because there are very large numbers of people who uh, are very poor and depend uh, desperately uh, on the ability to export based on, on really no advantage other than low wages. So uh, I always think when somebody says, "Well, shouldn't we roll back globalization?" I always say, "Think of Bangladesh. What, what, what do you expect them to do if they can't export apparel based on, on wages at 30 cents an hour? What, what, else, what else can they do in that country?" So that's, that's the core reason. And then, as a secondary thing, some lingering hope that we may—well, not lingering hope because we do see it—that we may see more South Koreas, that we may see more things like, you know, India. It's not clear that globalization was essential to what happened, but uh, do you really want to to chance taking away that possibility? But what do we do as a political matter? So we we have now a very difficult situation uh, in. Um, in, in politics. Uh the and, and here it gets a little it gets really quite American in, in orientation. I uh, can't help that. It's 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 the what place I know better. I don't have any any sense of what what the balance looks like on this side of the Atlantic. Um, uh, we had in the United States a kind of hiatus in the globalization debate. Um, and uh well, no, I, I did do a lot of Bush bashing, and and uh, uh, I will say that one of the things that uh, that uh, George Bush did do for us was in effect to give us a vacation from, from arguing about globalization because uh, lots of people who might had different views on that were united in the sense that something really bad was happening, and, and uh, so we can... Uh, uh, in fact, there was an extended period when if I would write about international economics for the New York Times, I would actually get a barrage of mail from loyal readers saying uh we're not interested go back to bashing bush so um, <laughs> um we have but now we're somewhat emer- we're emerging from that we have a uh, a change in the united states in in power in 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 the congress uh reasonable <clears> though <throat> though not certainly the change of of uh in, in in the executive um at the end of next year um and uh and the debates are are, are live and there there're debates now that are between people who broadly share the same values. They're all um, share a reasonable concern for the state of the world. They're all concerned about incomes of of working people in, in the United States. Uh, there's no fundamental difference in 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 world uh, you know in, in in what in what I and, and the protectionist wing of the Democratic Party care about. Uh, but there is a difference in weight, and in particular, they have to answer to constituents who are uh, reasonably, actually, on the losing end of of some of what's been happening. So here's uh, what what does a chastened globalist uh, do? Um, So three things. Uh, First, I think it's really important to be honest. Uh, If you go out and try to claim that there are Marvelous, wonderful things as a result of, of trade liberalization, and no harm is done. Um, all you're going to do at this point is just lose credibility. It's, you'll be missing. People will say, you know, you're just not in touch. Um, so being pretending that it's still 1990 and none of these chastening experiences have happened is not, is not due. Uh, don't wave off the concerns. Don't, uh, don't claim that, that, uh, that there are no effects. Uh, and you have to offer some kind of way of compensating the losers from the process. If you want to preserve this, there has to be something to wave off the losers. Um, right now, the favor proposals are things that will not work. They might buy you some time because people think they will work, but they won't. Um, labor standards, that's the current um, the current view of, of uh, the people who want to go about doing trade negotiations is that we're going to go and we're going to negotiate labor standards. We're going to have um, things that, that rule out slave labor. We're going to uh, right to organize, uh, so on down the line. Uh, why won't that work? It won't work because the reasons for the income distribution problem are fundamentally linked to the comparative advantage of the countries involved. Even if we have full rights of organizing in China, China is going to be a labor-abundant country exporting labor-intensive goods, um, and it's not going to go away. Maybe we'll we'll get rid of some of the more outrageous things that happen, but we won't deal with the fundamentals. So the only way labor standards can uh, can actually be effective is if they become what the critics of labor standards uh, accuse them of being, which is just a backdoor route of protectionism. You know go out there and try and impose a two dollar minimum wage on Bangladesh, and that will work because it'll just destroy Bangladesh's uh, Bangladesh's export industries, but that's not what you want. Uh, trade adjustment assistance it's the other thing that people talk about. Let's help the workers who are displaced by jobs by by trade, um, give them temporary you know, uh, cash training. But if it's really Stolper Samuelson, broad income distribution, that's not the problem. I mean, sure, fine, uh, but it's not going to actually. The, the, your real problem is a broad pressure on the relative wages of different skill levels of labor. Uh, it's not the world where the where the, the problems are just transitional. I mean, in, I guess in the in the very long run, you're going to have new generations that are more highly educated and won't be exposed to these pressures. But but this is it's not. You're not going to be able to take the 40 year old man whose job has been lost to imports, um, and uh, and uh, train him as a um, Uh, I'm trying to come up now with a high-wage occupation that's not possibly threatened by competition. I can't even come up with one, right? Train him as a software engineer. Whoops. Um, So uh, so that's not going to do it. Um, Things that might work. Uh, Things that that involve strengthening social insurance uh, uh, while uh, making the tax system more progressive. I think you want to think of this as being really the distributional impacts are, are hitting uh, a substantial part of the lower part of the wage distribution. Uh, if you can have any policy measures that broadly help the, that part of the wage distribution, uh, then that's a partial offset. Now you could argue that these things are th- these are things you should do anyway, regardless of whether trade is causing problems on inequality. But but the case becomes more acute. Um, and if you want something that is more specific, you know, we have this thing which has now been emulated in the UK, the earned income tax credit, uh, which is a wonderful way of actually saying we are going to reward work at lower wage rates um, in, in, a, in a way that, that helps offset uh, income inequality. The problem with in the US is that it's clearly, at this point, from the point of view of dealing with these problems, it's pitched way too low. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the tax credit uh, tops out at I think on current numbers about 15,000 a year, uh, and fades out completely uh, by the time you get to uh, to the mid 30s uh, in income, and that's uh, that's below the point. If if I believe uh, what we're seeing, it is that actually the median worker is actually being somewhat hurt by by trade. So an EITC that actually disappears before you even get up to the median uh, is not adequate. So you need something bigger. Um, and that's, again, part of, of where you can offer some compensation. It's going to be really difficult. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to defend free trade with the same kind of cheerfulness. Uh, I, I was about to say clean conscience. I think my conscience is clear, but but my uh, my attitude is, is is a little more depressed, a lot more depressed than it used to be. It's going to be much, much harder to make this case uh, honestly. Um, but it's going to have to be done the 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 fact of the matter is that the last fifteen years have been to go back to my word a pretty chastening experience for free trade advocates we haven't been proved wrong, but things have been turned turned out to be not nearly as easy, not nearly as good uh not nearly as uniform in their benefits as we hope to be and uh if If I were going to sum it up i'd say that uh The world is actually not a simple place that requires just a few slogans. It's a place that requires uh, detailed, careful analysis uh, sort of thing that uh, James Mead wrote once upon a time. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Paul, for an extremely stimulating and interesting uh, talk. Um, we now have some time for for uh, some questions. So there are roving mics, I believe, around the hall. Uh, so if you identify yourself, uh, then uh, we'll we'll start off the questions. Okay. So let's start off with Danny at the front. <clears throat>
2: Thanks, um, <coughs> Danny Kwa, Economics Department, LSE. I wonder if the chastenings that you have taken upon yourself are a little bit more severe and a little bit more subtle than a different reading of the facts might suggest. I am thinking in particular of the chastenings that you refer to as the increasing income inequality in the developed countries, your point number two, and then sorry in the developed countries and then in the developing countries number three. Now. Your your evidence for saying why you know inequality has risen and is a bad thing for the developed countries hinges on, among other things, the behaviour of this median worker. Not, but not to get too technical, the the median is just one part of an income distribution, and we know that an income distribution is a very complicated thing. It can do weird things in different parts of it. So, for instance, from the perception of the outside world, while the median worker has had their income fall, the bottom 40% of the income distribution in the United States has actually seen real incomes rise. Despite the the share of national income has fallen, but real income for the bottom 40% has actually risen. Now, it might be that by marshalling different facts about the income distribution in the rich countries, the United States and elsewhere, we we can come up with a more nuanced, less chastening version of your point number two. Similarly, your point number three, which has to do, with, which then, and the way I've read your, your presentation, the strongest piece of evidence there is what happened in Latin America post-trade reform. But Latin America is not, I think, what one might naturally immediately point to as where the strongest effects of opening up to trade have, have occurred. You've made mention of China several times in the presentation, but your single piece of evidence on China, if I understand it, was this increase in the Gini coefficient. But we know that that increase in the Gini coefficient in China came at the same time as a dramatically rapid increase in per capita income. And as far as I can tell, all of the literature that's tried to mesh those two pieces of evidence have actually said that China has succeeded in removing from states of poverty hundreds of millions of people over this time. So I might suggest that your points two and three might be more subtle than, than you seem to want us to, to believe. And then let me conclude with what seems to be a 500 pound gorilla sitting in the room that, that you've alluded to but that you don't make very much more of. And this is that you've talked about inequality within the developed countries within the United States and inequality within Latin American countries. And you've said how well to bring Bangladesh along we do need globalization. But the Bangladeshis of the world, the Chinas of the world, the cross-country income inequality dynamics of the world, that's the 500 pound gorilla that's experiencing these waves of, of impact from globalization. And then the evidence seems to be that we do see a convergence from the very rich, from the very poor parts of the world to converge towards the very rich parts of the world, even as inequality within those two parts of the world Continue to increase.
1: Okay, um, let, me, let me actually. On the last part, I, I agree completely. From the is this on? I doubt that it is. Um, okay. Um, the uh, I agree completely that from the point of view, you know, from, from a from from a, a ruthless cosmopolitan point of view. Uh, the, the, what matters it, most of all is the income of the poorest in the world and so the, the growth uh, this, this convergence of parts of of the third world rapid growth in there which narrows global inequality is, is the most important thing the world as a whole is a much better off place than it, than it was in the 1970s one of, uh, I could give you my, my globalization sermon which really comes back to People look back to the world before globalization, look back to the world around the time that I was in grad school, and they imagine it as this kind of happy place of of self-sufficient economies and and, uh, cheerful peasants singing their songs, and it's nothing like that. It was was a a, a desperate feeling of hopelessness in the world. So so this is a very important thing. But the problem is, again, we um, uh, we have a number of disappointed countries uh, in, in effect, I'm, I, I, I'm taking that as, as a given uh, and saying, but what do I say to the Latin Americans who say to me, you people from Washington came down and gave us uh, all these promises and they, and they didn't deliver? What do I say to the senator from Ohio who says, what do my constituents say? So it, it's, it is, it is it, it, at some level, it's a political economy problem rather than, than a global values problem. Um, about the inequality, I actually don't think... Um, it, that if you look certainly if you look at the distribution of earned income if you look at the distribution of wages there's on any ambiguity uh, it's it it's clear cut and it's been falling at, at the bottom and it's it's a uh um, there 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 really there could in principle be complicated things happening to income distribution but uh, but in practice it's 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 pretty much uh, univariate and and uh, so i mean there there's a long I I could get too far into this, but uh I'd even say, look, me, median family income in the United States is up. Uh although the earnings of the median prime age worker uh are down and, and then we get into all kinds of questions about um uh, if, you, if you have higher income because uh, because of increased female labor force participation and so on, this, how do we evaluate the welfare? The fact of the matter is that the inequality is is clearly increasing, and it's it's a problem, and it's a real. It it's again it's it's uh, uh, in in global human welfare terms, it may not look that large, but in terms of how do I how do I defend a a basically free trade position uh, when talking with a group of senators or congressmen that basically I I agree with on most things. That's where my problem is.
0: Adair Turner, and then the gentleman behind.
3: Yes, uh, Adair Turner, uh, among other things until recently, I was uh, chairman of the UK Low Pay Commission, which uh, sets our minimum wage. And... uh, we were very aware in setting that uh, minimum wage that the, as it were, pre-intervention level of wage inequality was increasing uh, with both the uh, upper end moving away from the median and the median moving away from uh, the lower end. And uh, that's, uh, that's well documented. The question I wanted to ask was this. You said that one of the arguments that you used to believe to say that the quantitative size of these effects was either small or limited was that we'd reach a point where everything in which other countries had a comparative advantage had moved over there already because there'd be a, limited right. to the, a limit to the traded sector of the economy and a limit to the areas which were based upon low skilled labour and that right. therefore would, would move. And that that limit has been moved by the uh, phenomenon of the disaggregation of the value chains, that you can outsource particular slices of what overall looks like an untraded good or a good where the UK or the US uh, actually has a comparative superiority and you can, you can trade that. The other thing that you used to argue, and I also uh, argued it uh, as well, is that it was limited because quite a lot of the economy isn't traded at all, that there's a non-traded, face-to-face service bit of the economy, You know, having a haircut, uh, buying a coffee off somebody. But of course that is affected by globalization not by free trade but by immigration. And you could have uh, uh, drawn a, a, a simple relationship between the rising inequality of the last 25 years uh, in the US that from 1980 onwards not only did you have a dramatic increase in the extent to which there was trade into the US but it was also a, a turning point in the flow of immigration. There was a lengthy period of time in the middle of the 20th century when there wasn't much immigration into the US and that turns around in the 80s and 90s. So my question is, what's your take on the immigration side of globalization Ah. argument? Is that also one of the things that's driving increased inequality? Okay.
1: Um, Yeah. um, As as you probably know, this is... uh, this, this is a hot issue. Uh, it's, it's actually, uh, let me say, it's actually a, it. It's a hot issue in a, in a slightly enjoyable way, um, because what's interesting is that that both sides of the political spectrum in the U.S. are split over the issue, um, but on the progressive uh, side, the split tends to be individual, um, agonizing. You're concerned about possible increase in inequality. Uh, you're concerned about the uh, political economy of having large numbers of disenfranchised voters. Uh, but on the other hand, you actually like the immigrants and, and like to see people making these gains. And it tends to be the same person experiencing both those both those feelings. And on, on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, there is a division between the people who who like cheap labor and the people who. Uh, who dislike brown people, and uh, it's been uh, it's been kind of enjoying to watch them tear themselves apart over that. Um, the um, there now there's a real academic debate, serious people on both sides about the impact of immigration on wages. In the U.S., uh, we've had the immigration is very low education levels, uh, so we're getting immigrants primarily from Mexico and Central America who have uh, who are well short of a high school degree, uh, and. Uh, um, if you just treat them as being uh, equivalent to native born workers with the same skills, um, then it ought to be a quite substantial negative wage impact, uh, circa 8% uh, negative real wage impact from the immigration. Um, There is an argument that says that they are not actually close substitutes, um, that that the immigrant workers are working in very different fields uh, and that they are Highly imperfect substitutes, which l- lets you bring that number way down. Um, I go mostly with my old student Gordon Hansen, who uh, uh, who works on these issues, and, and tells me that he he's he, he thinks the methodology of some of those low estimates is is flawed, and uh, so he's he's more on the on the eight percent negative uh, side. So that's where I would fall at the moment, but not from any independent judgment. Um, I mean, the, the presumption probably is you get a lot of Low education workers coming in. It, it, unless it's very special circumstances, it is going to be a negative and it is a source. I think that quantitatively, um, it's smaller than the trade issues, uh, and it's also uh, immigration. We do have restrictions on immigration, and the real question is only is only about. Uh, uh, exactly how we're going to about, go about trying to make them more or less uh, actually binding, um, and terrible debate about that. But but it's not we're not going to be tearing down a system. Whereas the the concern on trade is we essentially have global free trade on everything but agriculture, uh, and the, and the question is about backsliding, and that's a very different issue. So, but yes, the immigration thing, uh, you know, if if we had. If if we were like the United States in 1919 with very, very open immigration policies and we're having this problem, then it would be a comparably agonizing debate, but also impossible to stop the the, uh, restrictionist uh, position. So anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, – I'm having enough problems on trade.
0: (laughs) Easy question. I, I'm going to take, if it's okay, a couple of going lots of people with their hands up. So I'm going to take a couple of questions and then uh, give yeah. Paul a chance to answer. So there's a gentleman right. at the back that has been waiting a while.
3: Uh, my name is Raju.
1: I'm a London Metropolitan University student who's doing uh, international economics. My request is that uh, I'm sure Professor Crookman have been writing so many articles and, in economics. Of course, his contribution is very great to global wealth. But what I, my humble request is that uh, why not the next article should be disabled people's economic development in the developing country and developed country. Why not you write some article on so this will boost our profile in the global world. Because I think we also are facing a lot of (laughs) inequality. I'm I'm not quite sure I got what the question was. The question is that uh, it will time for professor to write uh, disabled people, economic development. Or disabled people, okay. Yes. Oh, so my. Because uh, I'm reading a lot of your articles. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. Um. Can you give us some chance as well? Yeah.
0: Um, do you have your hand up at the back there? Yes. You've been waiting. A lady in at the back.
4: Hi. My name's Anna. I'm a journalist. I'd like to know your view on fair trade. Is it just an adjustment that won't work or is it something good for... I'm sorry, on... Fair trade? Oh, fair trade yeah what's your beyond I mean
1: um, here's the position I think um, there, there are certainly there are rents in the system there are margins there are it's not true that that what the market gives you is is exactly what has to happen so it's not it, it the kind of total skeptical view on fair trade that says uh, nothing can be done that that uh, that that things like uh, certification of, of, uh, of treatment of laborers uh, or certification that, that farmers receive a, a reasonable price for their output is meaningless. So that's, that's the hard line view. Uh, I think that that's wrong. I think they there's, there's certainly don't want to be dismissive or hostile. Uh, but it is going to be at the margin. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the reason uh, wages are low and working conditions are terrible in uh, um, in, in, in a Bangladeshi apparel uh, factory is not ultimately that there is mistreatment by the employer, although there, well, there may well be, and that may be making things worse. It's the fact that the opportunities for those workers elsewhere are so poor. And, and there's not – so there's a limit on what you can do. You can you can certify that that all of the uh, – that, that your T-shirts and your shoes and, and all of the many consumer goods that come from the third world are being – uh, produced uh, in as as best conditions as as you can uh, reasonably hope for, but it's it's going to be marginal. It's going to man- It's going to be a few percent here and there. And that's uh, so. I, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, you know, this is again. Well, I've I've also made a kind of decision that that being you know, scornful and hostile towards uh, towards people who are worried about globalization is is not a productive strategy at this point. So I'm all for making some. Uh, uh, some, some, you know, I'm looking for what what can be made of it. But don't don't expect it's like it's like the labor standards issue. You know, should we be making sure that uh, that union organizers are not shot? Uh, for sure, and that's not that's not entirely abstract, right? Uh, um, but uh, will that solve the problems? No, it won't.
0: Uh, we have a question here, please. Could we, um, given time, could we try and my questions short? accumulating media. Well, never mind. Never mind, never mind.
5: <laughs> uh, thank you. I mean, while one could imagine that the inequalities in the developed countries can be managed because they have fairly uh, uh, strong and uh, efficient, go- efficient governments, but in developing countries, which, which are what you call uh, um, characterized by, uh, by what you call weaker governments, and also the pressure from the, uh, uh, from the uh, uh, market of uh, race, race to the bottom, how do they manage their inequalities? Um, thank you. Oh boy! Um,
1: first of all, that's an enormous subject. Secondly, it's, it's something that really you take a better expert in. I mean, I, I mean, I think the point on all of these, the general attitude we have to have now is that there are, there are no uh, perfection is is uh, is so far out of reach. You just look for little things that can be done. And the, the thing I've always uh, about, the, about developing countries is that because pe- so many people are so poor, quite small things, quite small amounts of money, can make a huge difference. And uh, so you do what you can. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's not it's certainly not true that that it makes no difference what the governments try to do. It, it's uh, the difference between third world governments that do try to do something for the for the for the poor and those that don't is is quite substantial. So um, it's. Uh, uh, that's, not, that's not a very good answer and you really want people, there are people uh, who, who devote their lives to trying to figure out those small interventions that, that can really make a big difference and I'm not one of them.
0: Okay, we, real, we really will try and accumulate a few now, so there's a lady right. at the back who's been waiting for a long time.
4: Rua um. um, uh, I'm an alumna of the school. Um, you only touched briefly at the What's end the on um, the issue of political will in all of this and I, preci- I acknowledge it's the Mead lecture so it's very much um, based on kind of trade patterns and comparative advantage. Um, But there's a number of issues, I think, where, you know, political will and government action are actually fueling inequality. So, for example, the uh, Bush administration with a very regressive social tax policy um, developing countries that would subsidise or incentivise developed country multinationals to invest in their countries at artificially low um, rates, if you like, rather than investing in their homegrown industries. Um, which would encourage high-skilled industries as opposed to subcontracting of kind of very labour-intensive, simplistic industries. Um, also successive meetings of the World Trade Organization which don't support developing economies as they should, which the fair trade question touched upon. To what extent do you see that political will shifting to address global inequality, or is it just going to have to be a question of civil society placing that pressure on governments? Thank you.
0: Okay, and question here.
5: <laughs> I, never will. But, but I thought the talk came to an end, just where it would have been interesting. And, I, I, and I'm terribly glad that I don't have to deal with your senator from Ohio. But what might you say if you gave him a tranquilizer and tried to, to deal with him non emotionally? I think you would have to go into detail about the tax and social insurance deals that you mentioned and especially the earned income tax credit you say it should be very much bigger and I'm inclined to agree but on this side of the pond uh, which you rather quickly dismissed the the best thing that Chancellor Gordon Brown has done has been to introduce tax credits which were directly modelled on the EITC and yet It's the least popular thing he has done, judging by a lot of the discussion. But it isn't only a political issue. If you were to ask those economists who don't like these devices for a reason why, they they would say that the tax and transfer rates you would need would have a substantial disincentive effect on uh, willingness to work and might reduce the GNP to to such an extent that it would offset the advantage from having free trade. Now, I don't know whether you think that or not. And I don't actually think this matters very much for the total of human happiness. But I'd very much like... uh, I mean, uh, uh, what you said in the earlier part of a lecture, is not all that controversial, if you really think of it. The difficult part, Is the last two lines, and I wish you would enlarge.
0: (laughs) Okay, we'll take one more, and then uh, you've been waiting a little while. So, some tough questions. That's fine. Uh, So, my name is Dmitry. My question is about um, your data that you use for illustrating the effect of reforms in Latin America, and. their um, income inequality in Latin America after reforms uh, do you think uh, if there is an um, effect of political action or inaction on the part of um, the local governments in terms of ineffective uh, anti-corruption measures and um, re- failing redistributive policies, what can they first of all do in order to uh, incentivize these countries to uh, adopt more effective policies and abide by, um, by them thank you
1: Okay. Um, The the, uh, political will issue, um, or just the politics of it, I mean, it's, I guess this is what happens at a a certain point in your your career. You start to think a lot about, uh, so I I think a lot about the, the, the fact that, Unfortunately, the way that the world works is not, as, as Meade might have envisaged. To I mean, not, not that he really believed this, but just the way of doing it, uh, that there's a, um, a, uh, uh, a, a council of wise men uh, deciding what you should do and, uh, and, and, and making those decisions. There are, in fact, uh, uh, political interest groups that are, are struggling. And in, in the, uh, uh, I wouldn't quite characterize it as a problem of political will, uh, there 's a problem of there's quite strong political wills uh, trying to accomplish uh, ends that are not those that I share uh, and in some cases quite nefarious ends uh, so uh, and of um, a book coming out about uh, all of uh, uh, most of u s centered but with some international about about that and the uh, uh, you know, so in the u s we clearly have something that that uh, we call movement conservatism. It's not that a, a movement that lacks the will to, to, uh, to fight inequality. On the contrary, it's a movement that's very strong-willed and well-organized to promote inequality. Uh, and, um, that's, uh, that, that's a, that's a long story. And, and so that's, uh, to some extent, that's part of why I'm trying to think so much about my senator from Ohio. Because I'm trying to think about, he's somebody who's on my side of that fight, but he's got a problem with trade. So what do I do? What, how do I, how do I give him some, some answer? Uh, Samuel Britton, um, In a perverse way, the U.S. has an advantage because we start from such a so much smaller a welfare state uh, that the incentive issues are are at this point quite small. Um, So that we we are, you know, if we did everything that was on my wish list uh we would still have a uh, a public sector that was uh, uh 7 or 8 percentage points of gdp smaller than than the uk's uh so it it's uh, uh of course then my wish list would expand but at this point the uh <laughs> uh at, at at this point the fact is that we we are uh, so it, that that may be more of a problem here and i understand that that uh, that uh, and we i i am looking uh, summit at at uh, at at Gordon Brown's efforts, and they are uh, they they do carry lessons uh, for the U.S. and they and and they do say that that there are good things you can do, but it's not that easy. This is in some ways the the Blair Brown government pursued a program on the domestic side that that looked like much of what a progressive administration in the U.S. might try to do, uh, although starting from a, again a much you know, the the uh, the, the british welfare state at the end of the thatcher uh, era was far more comprehensive than the united states has ever had so it it's starting from a very different base but but uh, and and it does show that you can do things but uh, it's not that easy and and uh, by all means i mean that uh, um uh, i think you probably want someone else to give that lecture but you're right those those are those those will be the hard things but first we there are some hurdles to cross uh boy Creating incentives for developing countries to do the right Um, thing—we have not been uh, notably successful in that. I I think, uh, and particularly, I have to say, this the whole Washington Consensus era. uh, Again, my my thoughts are mostly about Latin America, which is, is, uh, and and. it, it, it's an old joke that's been recycled in various versions but now it's, it's very current among the Latin Americans you know what, 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 what's the scariest uh, words you can hear uh, I'm, I'm from Washington and I've come here to help you uh, so uh, uh, this is I think they're going to have to reach their own 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 way on this
0: well uh, we could really t- carry on talking uh, for m- many more hours but unfortunately I have to bring this uh, this to an end so I'd just like to thank Paul wants more for a really excellent and really stimulation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.